Today, uh, we're going to be in chapter 23, and I want to spend a little time on the Sabbath material there. It's in verse 3. Like all of these things in Exodus, um, if you want the real details of a lot of these laws and standards, etc., you have to go to the book of Leviticus. But we're not doing that, uh, and I, that's not the real point of this. So let's pick up now. I think everyone's been around the last couple of weeks. Um, just to remind you that what God is establishing here in Israel now, you know, they've, they've left Egypt, they're free, he's got, given them uh, the promise of their land, and he's giving them now their constitution, we might call it their law. This is a theocracy, and that's a very important word to always remember in the Old Testament until you get to King David. This is a theocracy. God is directly ruling them. And the priests are the ones, the Levitical priests would be the ones that administer what God's saying. There's no king, etc. But with that, we see what God is doing is he's trying to establish now a society, a civilization, a culture, whatever you want to call it, that is based on his law, his values, his virtues, his standards. And one of God's goals is that everything they do in their lives however mundane or innocuous it is, they are to think of him. Because he's given them everything, and now he's fulfilling his covenant promises to them. And so as we're working through these fairly quickly, I'm not spending a great deal of time on these, but we're seeing what God wants to do here. So most of these are put in the negative. Do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. When we get to the Sabbath, uh, it's a little bit different, which... We'll look at in just a minute. But if you look at just verses 1 through verse 9 of chapter 23, these are illustrations of this system of justice that God wants to establish. I should say that God wants them to establish. Do not spread false reports. That's a good one. Do not spread false reports. How easy is that to do? In, in other words... I want to build a society, I want to build a civilization where truth is valued. You can trust what people say. You can trust what details they give. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Now, you know what malicious means, don't you? I mean, hateful or disrespected or hate-filled or, um, uh, one of my favorite words, nefarious. No, in other words, you want witnesses to be trustworthy because establishing a system of justice is based on witnesses that can verify what you're saying. The Bible will set the standard. If you're going to condemn someone, there must be at least two or three witnesses. Not just one, but two or three witnesses. Thirdly, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Oh, now that's NIV translate that. Isn't that a great one? Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. I'm in chapter 23, verse 2. Did I lose you? Yeah. Are you found? Okay. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, the easy, easy thing to do is just follow what the crowd is doing. Follow what people are doing without saying, that's wrong. I can't do that. Now, as you know, 
to stand against the crowd often is costly to you personally sometimes depending what's happening. When you give testimony to a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to the poor in a lawsuit. And so, I mean, they're put not, 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 but most expositors assume, and I think probably correctly, the not is just referring to something that is a very common practice. Don't do that. Don't do the common thing. Do the uncommon thing, which is what God represents. Because remember, this is a sin-cursed, broken world. So the sin-cursed, broken world's view of justice is going to probably be different than yours. The sin-cursed, broken world's view of truth is going to be different than yours. I don't know if you're, uh, just to illustrate this, to me it was really fascinating. I don't know if you ever heard of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's a really major dictionary out of England. Uh, they're always the source people go to to find what. Every year they choose the word of the year. 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth. That was the word of the year. I don't know about you, but that to me is a very revealing choice. Post-truth, meaning the most, the most famous illustration in new words that are coming into the culture, uh, we live in a post-truth era. That who defines what truth is? Who gives the boundaries and parameters of truth? Who defines truth? I don't know. We live in a post-truth world. That's, I mean, that's a, to me, I don't know about you, but that's a shocking, scary, uh, rather depressing illustration of what's happened to our world. And this is, you know, this is Oxford English Dictionary comes out of England, so they're talking about Western Europe as well as the United States and Canada. You're saying, are they saying this is the truth, but... Well, what's I, going on today is I, well, that's what, what, yes, what's going on today is post-truth, that we live in a post-truth era. Sometimes you hear, they become adjectives, but we live in a post-modern, post-Christian, post-truth era. And none of those three adjectives are encouraging to me. As someone who, I think truth is important, God is the God of truth, says to us in first, Psalm 119 and John 17, so... Therefore, I'm really interested in truth. But we live in an era where that's not as important as it used to be. One, one of the, I, rightly or wrongly, I love Christian apologetics. And if you listen... Like, not wrongly, rightly. Champion it. Yes, good. Okay, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Well, that's good. I love people like Robbie Zacharias and Frank Turek and yep, others. Yep. And I don't know if it's with one of Turek's debates with Hitchens, but one of the big things that they make a point of is that without God, there really can't be no truth. That's right. That's right. And Absolutely. So this idea of post-truth is directly tied to being post-truth. Absolutely. By the way, Turek, who had all those debates with Hitchens, he's a graduate of the school I used to lead. I just thought I'd throw that in. Okay, well, okay so you can't, you can't, you can't. I know about Grace, but what school was that? Grace, Grace University. At that time it was called Grace College of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's what it, he's a graduate. Mm-hmm. Years and years ago. 
So is he from Omaha or just studied? No, I don't think I don't think so. Uh, I think his family was in from is from Nebraska. I don't. If I knew, I forgot. I, I just don't remember. But I don't think he's from Omaha, but he's from Nebraska, as I recall. Some of us sitting at this table don't think that you ever forget. <laughs> well, if that is the opinion you have of me, you have a very distorted opinion, because just ask my wife how many things I forget. If I didn't have my wife, I'd be in a very serious condition. Um, so anyway, I, I think the point of these three verses is, 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 is made. What God is interested in, I want, to build, I want you to build a system based on impartial justice in lawsuits. You, you want to be impartial. You're not favoring anybody. What are you interested in? I want to know the truth. And I mean, that's, again, that is what a profound uh, and deep purpose for law in the ancient world. So you just see something again that what's what's God doing? He's trying to get the, the people of Israel to build a society that reflects His values and His virtues and His standards. Okay, number four. These are very oh, normal things that can happen in an agricultural site. If you come across your enemy's ox or a donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. I mean, just well, of course you would know, not necessarily in the ancient world. So is that responsibility of acknowledging private property, private ownership, the stewardship issues? If your donkey, verse 5, if the donkey, you see the donkey of someone, impersonal, we don't know who it is, who hates you, has fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help your enemy with it. <laughs> who did that in the ancient world? But God wants, and Jesus will pick up on this even in the New Testament, when Jesus says, love your enemies, which is just radical in any culture. Then do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Impartial justice. It doesn't show partiality to the rich or to the poor. Have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. So again, I mean, verse 7, if you go to Leviticus, has a whole chapter on that. But what you're doing is you want to be certain that whatever you are going to do when it comes to a capital crime, make sure you have adequate evidence. Make sure you have compelling evidence before you make that decision. Verse 6 there suggests that poor people filed lawsuits, not just the rich. That's right. That's because it says that's right. uh, in their lawsuits that that's they right. brought, which mm -hmm. surprises me a little bit. Well, what that, but that is a really good point, John. I should have made that, uh, made that emphasis. Because in this system of justice that God wants them to establish, the poor can bring a lawsuit. In so many, many parts of the ancient world, the poor could not even bring a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. So God is even giving, in, by, by inference, is even establishing that right and really, let's even use the word responsibility, that the rich can be sued by the poor for matters of injustice, which again is a very, uh, it's quite radical in the ancient world. Do not accept a bribe, verse 8. That was very, very common in the ancient world. It was almost anything you did in business, any kind of transactions always required a bribe not in the system God wants them to build. 
Why? Because a bribe blinds those who see, twists the word of the righteous. A system based on bribery is not justice. You can bribe your way out of anything, can't you? I mean, I'm making that as a statement, but if you have enough money, you can bribe your way out of anything. That's not justice. God says that you're not going to build that kind of a society. And then do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. I mean, that's just, I, I think that's even today, that's important for us to remember. We are a nation of immigrants. My parents are Im were immigrants. I'm sure some of yours were at least grandparents or great-grandparents or whatever. It's important that we understand that, even in America, without getting into the politics of this. Now, the next passage, which starts in verse 10, I have a couple of thoughts up here. I want to make a comment or two. Again, you go to the book of Leviticus, there are two chapters on all this. So in, this is just the overview that Exodus gives us of the Sabbath laws. I want to talk a bit about this. Let's read, um, let's just, let me read it real quickly. For six years, in verse 10, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest your crops, but during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat where they, what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and olive grove. Verse 12, six days you are to work, but on the seventh do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the slave born in your household and the foreigner among you as well may be refreshed. All right, now I want you to think with me about this. Because the emphasis here in this Exodus passage is a little different. It's, it's not um, contradictory. It's just a little bit of a different emphasis of why Sabbath, why you do the Sabbath. Well, first of all, let, let's start and work back. The weekly Sabbath. The word Sabbath is Hebrew Shabbat. That's the Hebrew word, and Sabbath, you're just transliterating the word into English. But it means rest. That's what the word means. Sabbath means rest. So the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, is you work six days and rest the seventh. Now, what is not here, but is in other parts of the Old Testament, this follows the pattern of creation. This follows, I'm not, I don't want to get into this, the day issue, whether it's a 24-hour day. That's not the point of this. The, the weekly Sabbath follows the pattern of creation, Genesis chapter 1, where God creates in six days and the seventh day he rests. That becomes the pattern for the human race. And so, although it's not stated here, that is stated numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Actually, it's even in the book of Hebrews as well in the New Testament. But you'll notice, the, you'll notice the, the emphasis here in this particular account or directive I maybe should use as a word. It's also for the benefit of your animals. It's also for the benefit of your slaves. Because it not only gives you your following, the obedience of following the pattern of God, and he works six days in creating the universe, the seventh day he rests, etc. It's not that God was tired. That's not the point. This idea, this concept, this emphasis on, on rest is profound throughout the Bible. It's deep. It has so many things to say. But also, the Sabbath and using it is an example of Mercy that you are showing to your animals and to your servants. 
Let me put it another way. The emphasis of these two in the book of Exodus, these few verses, the emphasis is on stewardship. That's the emphasis of this. Following the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath and the Sabbath year, is an act of good stewardship. Because remember, at the heart of the word steward, this is the English word, it's translating a Greek word, oikonomia, it's translating a Hebrew word. Stewardship is a, you don't own this. You are stewarding it for the owner. So who's the owner? God. God owns everything. God has trusted me with a little tiny plot of land on 774 Cold Creek Circle. That's my little plot. He stewarded me. It's his. That's how I'm supposed to look at it. But because I have, as a steward, I have dominion authority. God gives me that. That's Genesis chapter 1, 26 and following. I have dominion. I don't have sovereign authority. I don't own it. God owns it. But he gives it to me to be a good steward of it. So God is giving them the land. Now be a good steward of it. Be a good steward of your bodies. It is, I'm, I'm telling you, this is God speaking. I'm telling you, I created you in this way. You work six days, but the seventh day you rest. I set the pattern for that. I want you to follow the pattern. It's a being a good steward. You need the rest. You need the refreshment. You need the renewal. And if you don't do it, it's going to affect everything else you do. And I don't know about some of you, but I mean, when I, that was a real struggle for me when I was president for 15 years because I, I worked all through Monday through Friday, and then almost every weekend, I got in the car, got on a plane on Friday, and was gone all weekend meeting with donors, friends, alumni, preaching in churches, and all that stuff. So what does that mean? I didn't have a Sabbath. I had no Shabbat. Week after week, month after month, and then my wife got sick. And my wife was diagnosed with a heart condition, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, is the sickness she has, and then she was diagnosed with autoimmune disease. All of a sudden, I had to stop all that. Because she could, she was down to 89 pounds. And I, you know, Peggy and I, we talked a lot about that, and among others, because I was almost at the point, I was almost at the point I was going to ask the board for a six-month leave of absence, because I, I, I couldn't keep up with everything I was doing and caring for Peggy. My kids, Jonathan was gone. He would already graduated from Michigan. He was in New York. And Joanna was in college. She was at Grace. And, I mean, she could not, she couldn't really care for her mom either, because she was in school. So, I mean, it was, for me, it was a wake-up call. You have got to change what you're doing. I'm confessing that to you. I didn't follow this. I really didn't. And so one time I was down in Manhattan, Kansas, preaching in a church. I had driven. I had gotten up real early Sunday morning. I left, I think it was 3.30 in the morning, went down, preached three times there. And a man, an older man in that church, a Manhattan, Kansas, is right, that, that was a great church. I was, I, I was, given an opportunity, but they made an offer for me to come down and be their pastor. Because it's a college church. It's right on the camp, on the edge of the campus university. Many of the professors go, that was a fantastic opportunity. I almost said yes, <laughs> but I didn't. 
But he pulled me aside and he said, you have got to stop it. That's not what he said to me. I don't even know the guy. He's a professor of chemistry at the University of Kansas. He said, you've got to stop it. And I looked at him and I said, uh, uh, pardon me? <laughs> he said, you've got to stop the schedules you're keeping. I had a heart attack three years ago because I did the same thing you did. And so, you know, I looked at him. I, I think I, I must have been shocked, the expression on my face and everything, because I said, pardon me? But, you know, he, he said, no, look, he said, I'm just telling you, the schedule you're keeping, you cannot keep this up. So I said, thank you very much. <laughs> I didn't mean that when I said that to him. <laughs> but as I was driving back from Manhattan and that night, and I you know, was just thinking through and all the stuff that happened to Peggy and so on, I thought, you know, Lord, that is absolutely right. Grace Universe is going to survive whether I, you know, I am out every weekend or not. So I started to rethink some things. Uh, the board let me bring in an executive vice president. His name was Mike James, and Mike was just a fantastic guy in that area. And he took a lot of those day-to-day, well, I'm telling you more than you need to know. All I'm saying is the Bible is saying something to us here, and it's repeated in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. You work six days. You work hard six days. You pursue excellence those six days. But you take a day off. There's got to be rest. It's renewal. It's refreshment. It's spiritual renewal. Most of us, it's Sunday, but a pastor, it can't be Sunday because that's the pastor's busiest day. It's got to be some other day of the week. But a day of Shabbat, that's the way God made us. And so this is, this is stewardship. This is dominion. If you don't do that, you're not being a good steward. And you're going to get sick, and God's going to take you home early. Put it the way we put it as Christians. You know, it's really great that you shared that. Uh, I think it kind of fits with, you know, if we if we're not doing what God wants, He will correct us. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you know, there was in 2013. I was near death. I remember I was in that. The hospital for I remember five that. days. Then it was months getting well. That really slowed me down. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't work Saturdays and Sundays anymore. I'm enjoying my Bible study more. Yeah, it's good. And uh, yeah. you know, God has a way of getting our attention. Yes, He, he does. really does. I, I wondered why He saved me because I I was really close to death. Well, it's a very simple biblical answer, Woody. He's not done with you yet. Good. How about the the Sabbath year? Now that. 12, 13, 12, verse 12, we looked at that. But look at 10 and 11. Six years you sow your field, the seventh, what we would call in an agricultural state, you let it lie fallow. Okay? Now, the, it gives a reason. Then the poor may get food from it, the wild animals eat what they leave. Here again, part of what that means is then the poor will take advantage and, and use some of the unused land, all that stuff, as well as the wild animals. Eating the leftover corn, eating the leftover wheat and stuff that you haven't harvested or whatever. But let's think about this from another, because when you look at Leviticus, it also presents it from another angle. Because to let the law, it not only is enriching, because those of you in agriculture know that enriches the soil. To let it law file. 
It enriches, it rejuvenates the soil, et cetera, et cetera. So that's good stewardship. But it also builds trust in God. So what does that mean? This is how God presents it in the book of Leviticus. As I said, this material in the Sabbath is like two whole chapters in the book of Leviticus. And God says, the Sabbath year concept, trust me, this is what God's saying, trust me that for six years I'll give you a good harvest so that you can store it, you can save it, you can prepare it because the seventh year, everything goes fallow. You don't work the land. Let the land rest. Let the land rejuvenate itself. And all that, you know, in agriculture, we know that. Now, you know, we live in a, in a world where all the technology with fertilizers and all the other things, you know, we don't really do that. Although many farmers still do. Those sections, I just laid, we're not going to, I'm not going to plant anything this year in that particular section. So we still practice that to a degree. But there are a lot of things going on here because it's building trust. I will trust me for good harvest for six years because the seventh year, the land lies fallow. The vineyards lie fallow. The olive orchards, I mean, it's all that. That's what God says. I mean, it's the vineyards and olive growth. So it's just, nobody, nobody in the ancient world was doing this. But you belong to me. The land is mine. And that's true any, any portion of land on planet Earth today is God's, whether the Chinese or the Koreans or the Russians or the Af- anybody. They don't acknowledge that, but you and I do. It belongs to God. We are stewards of his land. And this is, you know, it's just important to take this. Not, you know, I don't think, the, this, the Old Testament law is no longer obligatory for us. We are not to follow it to these details. But the principles that are there are very sound that are just repeated again and again and again in the New Testament. Yeah, something I really like about this is uh, we leave the land unplowed and used uh, so that the poor may get food from it. Yes. My wife and I, several years ago, really got involved with missions, Mm. uh, local missions, feeding the poor and everything. And we began to realize over time we were becoming enablers. Uh, to the point where there was one family we kind of adopted and everything and tried to help Wonderful. out. And they called and was wondering, well, can you pack up some food from the mission and bring it by the house so we don't have to walk there? And that's when it kind of, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, they make the food available, but they've got a harvest. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly So right. I kind of learned that from the School of Hard Knocks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're building then is an entitlement mentality yeah. and a dependency exactly. mentality, yeah. which is not what God wants. Yeah. It, it, it isn't, and it's that fine line between, I love your word enabler, it's that fine line between helping those in need, but also helping those in need to learn how to help themselves so that they're not dependent and have an entitlement mentality, which... Um, without getting into the politics of all this, is unfortunately, to a degree, what we're doing in the United States and what Europe has been doing for a long time and what the communist socialist mentality has done for, for, for decades. And that's the fine line. How do you help serve real human need but not create the kind of 
dependency that's not health. I think I didn't I tell you about the ministry Peggy and I about possibilities Africa. I don't remember if I told you that or not, but our church and Peggy and I have been involved in it too. It's a neat ministry in Africa. Uh, it's a guy who's a graduate of Moody where I, I just was this weekend at grad school, but my pastor, my lead pastor, it was a real friend, a good friend of his. And his whole, he is from Africa, he's from Kenya originally, but his whole goal of possibilities matter Africa is, Joel. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask maybe from an application standpoint, I, mean, I don't think any of us around the table are farmers today, but the, I mean, can you make the, the application into tithing uh, in terms of just trusting God, giving back? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a that's a whole other area of teaching in the Old Testament. It's exactly the same point. Exactly the same point. Uh, if God is asking you to tithe, give a ten percent of everything that you you earn and receive, etc., then you have to trust me that I'm going to make the other ninety percent work for you. Absolutely. I mean, it's all it's all built on all, but I mean, all aspects of law are built on enhancing and building the trust that. Uh, God wants trust and dependence on him that God wants because he owns everything. And if he owns everything, he's just saying, look, I own everything, but I'm asking you, and that's kind of a minimum because there are many other issues in the Old Testament that indicate it would probably closer to 22% than 10%. In the New Testament, the principle is not, not so much tithing as free will proportionate giving. As God blesses, you give. And if God gives greater blessing, you give more. That's kind of a New Testament way of putting it. But what what you were saying is really a, a rich, a rich application, but a rich standard for us to have. And I loved your word, enabler. I want to enable people. I don't want people to be dependent on me or on anyone else, because ultimately. It's the same thing, regardless of where you are in the socioeconomic scale, you still have stewardship responsibilities. You still, you're a steward of something. And and it's just, we have so lost that in so much of our, our culture. Now, again, I'm trying to stay away from any of the pot. Ben Sass has just come out with a new book, and I don't know if you've seen that. That is worth spending some time on. Regarding, regardless of the fact that he is in the United States Senate, he's on to something there. He, it's the delaying of adulthood. What we are doing is we are creating a generation that has no initiative, no vision, and, and no personal responsibility. It's entitlement. Yeah, but that's... It, yeah. it, the, like vanishing of the American the, yeah, vanishing adulthood or something. Like, adulthood's in a vanishing adulthood or a vanishing adult or something like that. It's really uh, I don't know how much you know about him. He he is a very strong a man of faith. His faith is very important and personally, but it's not so much that he's just he's making a series of observations about where our culture is and how we're not preparing kids for what they really should be be good stewards. Of everything, you know, I would put it, everything God, he doesn't quite put it that way, but his faith is there. You can see it in the book. But I'm using that just as an illustration. Here's a guy who is saying something that needs to be said in our culture. And it's like, we as parents, we should be enablers for our kids. I don't want my kids dependent on me. Do you? I mean, when they're four, yes. 
But when they're 20, I don't want them dependent on me. And they shouldn't be dependent on me. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, okay, you know, it's... And, you know, today, I'm sure you read, this is one of the things Sass brings up in the book. We have 30-year-old guys still living with their parents. No initiative, no goals, no vision for the future. The parents just... You know, now, I don't mean, and I hope, maybe some of you have a 30-year-old in your home. But <laughs> what you really should do is say, there's the door. There's the door. You get a job. You get a job where you can live on your own. Mom and dad have helped you for 30 years. Now, you, I, I'm just, and, and as a, you know, there are always unique circumstances. But he's just making a comment. He uses statistics. It's, it's really quite astonishing. I just went through that, and it's this balance of, Get out, well, but keep you posted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. It's yeah. Like, you got to go. Uh, did you did you find the title? Yeah. Okay. Vanishing America. Okay. I I knew it was something Vanishing like that. Vanishing American what? American yeah. But even our federal government calls a twenty six year old a child to health care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's just. Well, we we just went through the thirty three series. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And they talked about extended adolescence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the United States invented the concept of adolescence after World War II. We really did. As a, it, we invented that, and that's we organized our educational system. We, our churches organized youth groups. There was no youth group for World War II, and I'm not. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But the the issue then became: Well, when does adolescence begin, and when does adolescence end? Well, we used to say adolescence ends when you graduate from high school. The American, uh, 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 the Health Care Act of Obama doesn't recognize that. That's not how it looks at it. The Affordable Care Act looks at it as, well, we're going to say it's 26. So, I mean, it's just, it's not that that's wrong. It's just, what are the implications of that? What are we really saying? What? Why are we doing this, and how do we develop metrics to d- measure whether that's a wise thing to do or not? That's not necessary. And it's in a lot of areas. You know, The Bible is saying, here are some basic principles. If you're going to be a steward of what I'm giving you, here are principles I want you to follow. It's going to make you a good steward. Instead of, uh, the state takes over. And manages my life from when I'm born to when I die. And the, the state takes over these parental, and it creates a dependency that's not healthy. But you talked about the trial. Yes. Exactly. And what's happened to the family unit. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, uh, what was significant about World War II that brought that? What, what was significant about that? Well, part of it was after World War II, you had this phenomenal change in our society because the GI Bill made it possible for GIs to do two things, get a college education and buy a home. My father bought his home through the GI Bill. He was in the Navy. When World War II was over, he came back. It was the very first thing he did. He took out the GI Bill. My dad built his own home, but he got that loan through the GI And that was a good thing. But what it did is it then created this suburban culture over the next uh, 15 years, where all of a sudden you have a whole new... People aren't living crowded in cities. They're living now in larger areas with more space, and they're building these schools and, and all of that kind of thing. And colleges exploded, higher education exploded and all that. 
And all of a sudden, we're thinking differently about the developmental stages of our children. And that the development, okay, what do we do now? Um, instead of, instead of before the child labor laws, child labor laws were passed, you know, during the New Deal and so on. Now, instead of kids going to work at 14, no, we're going to want them to go to college and so on. So everything is now shoved forward in terms of, and all of a sudden you have this gap between when they're, you know, getting into high school and when they go out on their own. It's no longer 15 or 16. It's 22. So was that the crack in what I call the trades? It, yes, in, in a way, it really was. And I mean, it's the beginning of it. Now, you know, I take, that takes a decade or two for that to really start to... It's very confusing living out here that there's no Votech. Uh, right? If you want to learn a trade, you yes. have to go to Metro. Yes. 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 Right? That's and right. And for high school. And for yes. us, there's yes. this, you went through 10th grade, and then you either went pre-college. Yeah. Or you went to Votech and trade, right? Yeah. Carry on the trade of your parents. That was very, very common. Oh, yeah. Some of us this, are old enough to remember tech high school. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Well, and listen, today, and this is one of the things Sass talks about in the book, and it's in other things, too. Listen, what we should do is some of these guys, you don't need to go to college. You know this, some of you in business, there is a crying, crying need for skilled labor today. I mean, there aren't enough good skilled laborers in a lot of, so, and Nebraska is really suffering from that. Well, there are, they're just on pieces. Well, well that's it. But, and, you know, he said, you know, you, you, child's got to be a plumber or electrician. These guys can make $100,000 a year. They can make more than college graduates can make. Oh, yeah. my, my, my and I mean, it's like, what the, duh, we don't, <laughs> you know, no. Yeah. It's my, my just, it doesn't part. make sense. I'm sorry. I'm no, I'm done. Part, I quit school at 14. He had his first house at 16. He used to laugh at his buddies that went to college because he was making <laughs> twice what they Sure. sure. And it's not that there's anything wrong with college, but no. it's the sense we have is you're a failure if you don't go to a four-year college. Yeah. Whatever you're going to do, is you're a failure. And that's, that's the wrong message to be sending because I'm telling you, when I was in higher education my entire life, there are some kids that should not go to college. Yeah. They just shouldn't go to college. They should be challenged to go to a tech school, or, I mean, to learn a trade. And it's not because, but for some reason, we now have the stigma in our society. That's, that's kind of a failure. If you have a trade, your son's, what does your son do? Oh, he's a plumber. Oh. Well, my son. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. I know what I pay my plumber. <laughs> you know, or my electrician, or the guy that comes out and works on my air conditioner. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, all right, now we're way off the Bible. <laughs> One more, yeah, go ahead. So these, these kids all end up going to college in higher education, and the ones that can't cut it, then the school starts altering stuff so that it looks like they're making the grade. That's, well, that's even a bigger tragedy. Yeah, well, and then the other side of that, too, it's also very tragic, is a lot of these kids, when they go to college, they do so on a guaranteed student loan program and so on, and they don't even finish, but they have a pretty large debt that they have to pay off. Yeah, the, the, right. the average medical student coming out of, out of four years of medical school, mm -hmm. three, four years, has between 
I know, I know. There's a, a couple in our church. He's an architect and she's a doctor. And uh, now they've been paying it down. They're down out of 100000 But when she graduated from medical school, she owed $500,000. Now, in, you know, in, me- in medicine, over time, you can make that and pay. But you still, I mean, just think, of, I, can't, can you, I can't envision that. I can't envision having a debt, a personal debt of five hundred thousand dollars. I just out your your third quarter. Yeah, yeah. GI Bill helped me get through the first several years of our married life and our professional life. We skipped and scraped. Right. Everybody said, "Oh, he's a doctor." Hard years, you know, hard years. Peggy and I have said when I was doing my doctor, I mean, we were really scraping. Oh, it was really something. And we both were like, how in the world did we do that? But, you know, even when you're in the, you're not thinking of it that way. You're just, you want to get to your goal, but and we look back. at Verse 13, let's get off this. I really wanted, I hope this makes sense to you. This is, this is a fundamental biblical principle. It doesn't only apply to ancient Israel in 1440 B.C. when this was written. This this is a fundamental principle that our creator is telling us. I own everything. You're a steward of it. Here are two principles about being good stewards. Then he says, notice it's like right in the middle of this, all of this discussion, you have this directive. Be careful, verse 13, be careful to do everything I've said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do nothing to be heard on your lips. It's a reminder of the first commandment. It's a reminder. I am to be the most important person in your life. And don't invoke Baal. I'm, I'm going to fast forward. That's what they're going to do. Baal or the Asterolks or Molech or Chemosh or any of the gods around them. No, I don't even want their names heard on your lips. It's a reminder of the first commandment. Jim, I have a question. Oh, please. Uh, the seventh year of the land rested. Right. Was that used to call the year of Jubilee? No, that's the fiftieth year. The fiftieth. Then every you know you have you have you have seven and seven, and you go to forty nine. Then that forty ninth year, you let it lie fallow two years, and that's the Jubilee year. And what, what does the word mean? Uh, celebrating the goodness and blessing of God for five decades. And you show that by being dependent on him an extra year. Because God says, when you go to Leviticus, the material on that, God says, because that 40, the the seventh cycle and the seventh uh, cycle of seven, then you're going to have that Sabbath year, then you're going to have the next year Jubilee. So you've got to trust God that six years he's going to really bless you because at the end of that, you're going to have two years. So that's the Jew. And it was the time of great celebration of God's faithfulness and bounty and blessing. Can I tell you a story? I want you to think, because I, you know, I get to the Middle East every, well, I haven't been to the Middle East now last year, but before I was going every year. But anyway, I used to, it was, it was always funny because I've gotten to know a lot of Jews, uh, Jewish people in Israel, and some Orthodox Jews. Do you know they still, they still follow the Sabbath year? But this is how they do it. It's, it's so inconsistent, but it's how they do it. When, it. when you're about to enter the Sabbath year, 
they, the farmer who's an Orthodox Jew sells all his land to the local rabbi for a shekel. Then the local rabbi then farms it out to the owner, but he doesn't own it. <laughs> I mean, you're following me how ridiculous this is? That's how they get around this. So I personally am observed because it's not my land. I mean, I think, oh, goodness. But that's how they get around because they can't, they can't envision the land of Israel not being productive for a year. So everything goes exactly like it normally goes, except they do this little end run the seventh year by selling their land. So it's really not their land, so they are letting it lie. So they don't have to observe it because they don't own the land. I don't have any land to lie fallow. So, I mean, that's hypocrisy, that's inconsistency, but uh, if you know anything about any human being, you're always finding uh, what's, what's the end run. What what can I do to get around this standard? No, anyway. So, do they get to buy it back first? And at the end, and at the end of the end of the Sabbath year, then you buy it back. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, Still but no, if the Amish practice. Um, Letting it lie fallow for a year if they don't do that. No, not really. Not really. Verses 14 14 through 19. These are, now I want to, again, in Leviticus, there's just chapters on this. But these are the three annual agricultural festivals. Because remember, this is an agricultural society. And so, three times a year, you're to celebrate a festival of meat. First is the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Now, that's, that is a part, we saw that. That's a part of Passover. You have Passover followed by a week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I've commanded you. Uh, do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. That's the first month of the Jewish calendar. That's the month they come out of Egypt. Okay, that is in March, April of every year. It's during the barley harvest. They are to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then verse 16, the festival of harvest. With the first, first fruits of your crop, you sow in your field. And this, is, this leads to what's called the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. That's what it was called, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which is really important in the New Testament, as you remember. But this is during the wheat harvest. Then number three is, the, verse 17, celebrate the festival of ingathering. That's in September and October, at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from your field. And by the way, the feast of ingathering was the first Thanksgiving. It didn't start with the pilgrims in 1621. It started with the festival of ingathering. I'm serious. That's really what it was to be. You have your harvest in the fall, then you, you bring it to the Lord and you have a festival of thanksgiving to the Lord for his faithfulness over the last year. Now, what, why? Because, listen, that's why it's agri- each one of these is barley, wheat, and then the fall harvest. It's at the end of God has been faithful to us during this planting and harvesting season for this crop. Now we thank him with a festival. We rejoice. We offer sacrifices because God has been faithful to us for another planting and harvesting season. That's what God's after. You're a steward of my land. 
I promise to bless you as long as you're faithful to me, and you're going to celebrate my faithfulness to you every quarter. Well, it's every third, really. But, and that's, that's what this is doing. It's, it's to demonstrate their thankfulness to God for his faithfulness to them, that the harvest they're bringing, whether it's barley, wheat, or the fall harvest, what God has done for them. God has blessed. And, you know, it, that, that's when you mentioned the Amish, John. I, I lived in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised, in the southern part of the county. When the Amish have their harvest in the fall, I mean, this is a really, they have, they don't call it that, but it's a festival and gathering. It is a huge celebration. And they're giving thanks to God for what he's done for them in this previous year. And that's really how we should, and you know, that the origin of Thanksgiving is rooted in our history with the early pilgrims and then the Puritans. I mean, it's just there are hundreds of examples and the presidents instituted and so on. But it's become so secularized today. But it really is the time. I always tell my kids, when we have Thanksgiving, we're going to go around the table and we're going to thank the Lord personally for what he's done for us this past year. That's what it's supposed to be. And so it, it's just, their focus again is to be on, to, on the Lord. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before their sovereign Lord. The men are to, isn't that important? The men are to lead these festivals. The men are to lead these festivals. Do not offer the blood. No, okay, how, how do we offer sacrifices? The details of it is in Leviticus. The burnt offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the vada offering, that's... But do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of the festival offering must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruit, the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Okay, God is just saying, do not offer the blood of the sacrifice. Do not offer the fat, the best of the first fruits. And then this strange, strange prohibition. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> it is, this has been one of the real perplexing um, issues of, of expositors, but probably there's been some archaeological discoveries in some of the diggings of Tzor and some others. This was an ancient Canaanite practice that had to do with their fertility gods and their fertility festivals. And so, because remember, these are set up at Mount Sinai for them. This is how God wants them to live. They're not in the land yet. But when they get in the land under Joshua and they start living there, all around them are going to be Canaanites. Because they're not going to be obedient to the Lord, as you'll see. But God says, look, these are agricultural festivals. These celebrate my bounty and faithfulness to you. By the way, the Canaanites do a lot of the same thing. That's a fertility cult. And one of the things they do is they boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Don't do that. It's just, it's a weird prohibition, but it has a lot to do with an ancient Canaanite fertility practice. Again, that's what most expositive, because of some things we found at Hutzor and the diggings there, that that was something they practiced as a fertility rite. So that's what God is saying. Don't want you to be like Canaanites. All right? Now, verse 20 through the end of the chapter, this is like, Fast forward. Now, this is what I'm going to do. 
I brought you out of Egypt. I'm now giving you the law. Now this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you into Canaan. And I'm going to fight for you. And I'm going to give you the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. What's the place? Canaan. It's the promised land. It's what I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I brought Jacob's clan with Joseph. I brought Jacob's clan down to Goshen. You became a nation over the next 430 years. Now you're ready for me to give you the promised land that I, I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm going to send an angel ahead of you. There's a lot of speculation as to who that is. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us that Michael is the archangel of Israel. Jude refers to Michael as an archangel. Is it, is it Michael? Some have suggested that it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. We don't know. It's just all God is saying is I'm going to supernaturally lead you into the land. Pay attention and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. That's why some suggest it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's the second person of the Trinity. If you listen carefully to what he says and do know all I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you. And bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. That is exactly what God does. And so you will know the angel of the Lord led them out of Egypt and the pillar of you know, all that. And all God's saying, and the angel's going to lead you now into Canaan. Now, these are the, the Ites peoples, the Amorites, the Ites peoples are all Canaanite people. These are the people who inhabit the land, grossly immoral by this time, grossly paganistic. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them, break their sacred stones to pieces. Joshua, as he goes in under the conquest, that's in the book of Joshua, that's exactly what he does. He destroys all their idols, burns their cities. You know, archaeological, in both Jericho, in Hatsor, all these great cities, all the archaeological evidence bears out the text. This is exactly what they did in the 1300s. Worship the Lord your God, verse 25. And his blessing will be on your food, water. I will take away sickness from you. No one will miscarry or barren. I will give you a full lifespan. That's the, that's the Mosaic covenant promise. If you walk with me in obedience, I will bless you. If you do not walk with me in obedience, I will discipline you. But that's, this is a summary. Now, let me do one more thing and we've got to quit. Verse 27 again. It's just, what's he going to do to Canaan? I will send my terror ahead of you. Throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornets ahead to you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites out of their way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate. Wild animals too numerous. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. And that's exactly what God does. Incrementally, but he drives them out. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. Some of your translations might have the Sea of the Philistines, but it's the Mediterranean. And... I will give into your hands the people who live in the land. I will drive them out before you. And I make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in their land 
or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. And that's tragically exactly what happens. They don't drive out all the Canaanites. And if you look in the book of, if you look in the book of Judges, it's really interesting how, it, how it's developed. End of Joshua in the book of Judges. The Canaanites lived with them. Israel lived in the Canaanite. And then it concludes, Israel lived with the Canaanite. They don't obey. And the great, the great challenge through Judges and through the monarchy is they're always, always compromising. They're worshiping the Canaanite gods. Just like God said, if you don't do what I want you to do, next Wednesday what I want to do is I want to go back to this handout I gave you last week, or last week, three or four weeks ago, the, 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 the treaty. Because in chapter 24 is the ratification of the treaty. And I want to spend some time on that next week as we highlight. And then we're going to skip a number of chapters and get into... Um, the, the material, because these are all the details of what God wants them to do in making every implement, every part of the tabernacle. And this it's great reading, but it's kind of a cure for insomnia when it comes to a class. So we're going to skip, we're going to get chapter 32 in the golden calf as Moses is up getting the law and so on. What are the people doing down here? Lord, we are grateful for the word of God even as we're studying these uh, portions of the Old Testament that replied specifically to Israel, we seek principles that are important for us in how we live our lives. Stewardship, it was the main point of today. The stewardship of the land. You own everything, you give them dominion authority. This is how you want them to steward the land. And those are the important principles, Lord, in how we steward our bodies, our time, the little plot of land you give us in our home, our cars, whatever. You trusted us with those things, and you expect us to take care of them. And Lord, as I shared a little bit in my own life years ago, I was not being a good steward of my time or of my body. And you really shook me up with that. Woody shared a little bit about his own life as well. We all could share similar examples. Lord, help us to be good stewards. The mark of a steward, the Bible says, is to be faithful. Oh Lord, we want to be faithful stewards. We want to manage things to your glory because you are the sovereign Lord. You own everything. You share it with us. You trust us with it. And we want to be faithful stewards. We want to hear you say when we get to heaven, well done, good and faithful steward. So Lord, we, we look forward to that. Meanwhile, just help us to be faithful to be representing you well in what we say and in what we do to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 See you next week.